Aragon, Chapter 10. Christmas rolled on in a blur of masks, jousts and feasting. Cardinal Wolsey had a play put on which we all went to see. January the 1st was the time for gifts and the Queen gave me a small illuminated book of hours. In it there were all the prayers for every different time of day, the saints' days and passages from the Psalms. I particularly loved the page where my own dear Queen Catherine was pictured worshipping the Virgin Mother. Queen Catherine was magnificent in scarlet and gold, while the Virgin's face was illuminated with a gold halo that seemed to shine over them both. I was overjoyed with it, and I threw myself into her arms to thank her. I treasured it then, as I do now, daughter. It is one of the few things I have to remind me of her. I tried to put the embrace between the King and Anne Boleyn out of my mind. After all, if she was determined not to become his mistress, what harm could come of it? There were plenty of other willing women at court, should he want a romance. And I still hoped that one day we would hear his steps on the floor outside and the Queen would turn me out of her bed in a hurry. It used to happen. Years ago, I spent many nights in the maid's dormitory while the king and queen slept together. But it hadn't happened for a long time now. The queen, dignified as ever, had accepted it, although I knew she hoped her husband would in time return. But the most important thing was that he had recognised Princess Mary as his heir. In time, she would make a suitable marriage, one where her husband could support her and heirs could be born to the Tudor throne. Whether that marriage would be with a French or a Habsburg prince, who could tell? It depended on the state of international affairs. Or maybe she would be matched with an English lord, whom, though her inferior, would prevent any fears of a foreign takeover. And, after all, she would always have the wisdom of her mother to guide her and the power of her father to inspire her. Princess Mary left for Ludlow just after Twelfth Night. The Queen wept bitterly in bed later, but consoled herself. My Mary will become a great Queen, she told me. The King knows that and has accepted it. As the winter dragged to its close, the gales whistled around the palace walls, making the tapestry hangings in the Queen's chamber tremble in the draughts. Lent had started, and none kept it more strictly than Queen Catherine. Again, we ate no meat, no eggs and no cheese. But this time there was not the glittering feast of Christmas to look forward to. Easter was quiet without Princess Mary. The King was distant, always courteous to Queen Catherine in public, but his mind seemed elsewhere. As for Lady Anne Boleyn, she continued to serve the Queen, and showed no sign of any secrets to hide. 
She was at least as pious as the Queen during Mass, dutifully sinking to her silken knees to pray. I still visited her some afternoons when we would sing together and read poetry. Her face came alive when she read out Wyatt's verses. Rather than being cold and forbidding, as it often was, she glowed. I thought Wyatt was much too concerned with displaying his feelings, but his poetry made Anne come alive. Whoso lists her hunt, I put him out of doubt. As well I may spend his time in vain, and graven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about, Nole me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Did Anne relish Wyatt's unrequited love? And did she consider herself to belong to the king? Surely that was just a fantasy. Here she was, a girl who had always been considered second to her sister in beauty, and she was now admired by at least two men, one of whom was the king. And yes, she saw herself as wild. She was no tame young lady to be played with and then discarded. I thought on these things, but I saw no sign of any liking between her and the king. I thought it pleased her to imagine that the king wanted her, but most likely his eye had alighted on a more conformable quarry. At last the lighter days came in and the court became merry once more. In April, Will appeared in the Queen's presence chamber and asked her consent to escort me to the May Day revels. On hearing that he was training to become a lawyer, she smilingly gave consent. I was happy about this not because I wanted my dear friend to become my lover or anything embarrassing like that. No, I was just happy to see him again and spend a day with him. I wore my green gown again and twined sweet-smelling bluebells in my copper-gold hair. Pinned to my gown, I wore a small silver brooch set with garnets. The Queen had given it me at Easter and it was the first piece of jewellery that I had ever possessed. Will met me at the palace gates and we walked down together to the gardens beside the river. There was dancing, singing and games like blind man's buff. But Will wasn't looking at the revels. His eyes danced up and down me, taking in every detail of my May Day costume. By Jiju, I swear, I could not find a finer lady than you, Cat, to spend my May Day with. Stop it, you're making me feel uncomfortable. I don't want any of that nonsense. Let's just do something together, like in the old days. Is father free today? Will shook his head. No, busy boiling sugar. I looked at him crestfallen. I had expected to be seeing the man I still considered my father today. But I have another treat for you, dear cat. A debate so delicious, so dainty that your sweet mind will love it. No, don't worry. No advances today, just discussion. Come, we are going up river. He grabbed my hand and took me towards the landing stage where the small boats waited for customers. Austin Friars, Will said to the boatman, I'm taking you to see where I live. I looked doubtfully at him. To Master Cromwell's house? 
I was curious to see Will in his home surroundings, but I wasn't sure what he meant about a debate. Surely there was not much of interest there. Austin Friars, you know it. It's the Franciscan Priory. Master Cromwell rents a house from them. It's a very fashionable part of London, you know. Erasmus lived there, and the ambassador to the Holy Roman Emperor has a house. It's so cosmopolitan, you see Italians, Flemish, and even Africans on the streets around the house. Today, Master Cromwell is having a May Day dinner, and he told me to bring you. You will hear many interesting discussions at Master Cromwell's table. I look stupid, I protested. I'm just a maidservant. Will laughed at me. No, you won't, he assured me. You are far from stupid. And Master Cromwell, he is a blacksmith's son. He has no care for status or gentility. He likes people who are clever and speak their mind. When we got to Austin Friars, we disembarked and walked up to the house. It was close to the gateway for the friary itself, a little set back from the street. A goodly size, it was three storeys tall, with a porch at the front leading into a large hall. I was used to court apartments with their luxury and decoration, but still the hall impressed me. It was well proportioned, with a blazing fire and tapestries showing religious scenes on the wall. The long table was set ready for dinner, entwined with green spring leaves and flowers. Groups of people were starting to sit down, and some musicians at the end of the hall were playing the merry month of May. A stoutish man got up and came to meet us. After a moment, I realised it was Master Cromwell. He had put on weight since I saw him at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, and his clothing was better quality. He had on a black velvet doublet, slashed to show a white linen shirt underneath, and red hose. Mistress Cat, welcome! He bowed courteously, and I swept him a deep curtsy. You have grown since I last met you. You were such a small girl then. He smiled at me, and I felt encouraged by him. Unlike so many others, I thought he would not dismiss me as a mere serving maid. I told Will to bring you today. We will have a merry time of it. We have my friend from Italy, John Cavalcanti. We have the ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, and many others. He swept his arm expansively around the room at the richly dressed occupants. But first, you must meet my wife, my Elizabeth. He beckoned to a small woman, dressed well in a blue velvet gown, but with a simple coif on her head, much like my mother had worn. She came up to us, and again I curtsied, and Will bowed. She curtsied herself, then took my hand. Mistress Cat, I have so much wanted to see you. Will tells me how clever you are, how you can read Latin and speak French. She smiled ruefully. Now my husband is a great linguist, but for myself, I'm afraid all I can speak is the king. You speak more sense in English than most do in any other language, my dear, Cromwell said, smiling down at his wife. And we will be speaking in English today. I want to know, and you can tell me, Cat, what are the fashions that the ladies of court most desire? I deal in cloth as well as my clerking. 
I need to know what types and qualities of cloth I should import from Italy, what the ladies of the court wear today, the ladies of London will wear tomorrow, and by next year, even the ladies of York will be wearing them. Will spoke to his master and mistress. I told Cat that we would be having a dainty debate today. She will be able to tell you about all the latest fashions. And maybe even a, a little of the latest news from court, asked Elizabeth Cromwell, a mischievous smile on her face. Come, sit by me, Mistress Cat, and Will can sit beside you. With my children being so young, I am so unaware of all the latest doings at court. I asked my husband, but will he spare the time to tell me how Princess Mary fares or what the Queen is wearing this spring? He is a man, my dear. Dinner was held in the middle of the day with the pale spring light pouring in through the glazed windows. Servants brought in dishes of roasted chicken, pheasant and pork. There were salads of tender green leaves, the first of the season, and loaves of soft white bread. Afterwards, we ate creamy lemon posset with tiny sweet biscuits. We drank a light, dry Italian wine with the scent of gooseberries. Looking down the table, I could see around 40 people and I could hear conversations in Italian, German and English. I spoke happily with Mistress Cromwell about the events at court and the fashions for this spring. I was then cross-questioned by Master Cromwell, who wanted exact details, and my estimation of the heaviness, the pile, the decoration of certain fabrics that were common at court. He might be working for Cardinal Wolsey now, but he did not see many of the court ladies during the course of his work, and I soon found out he was the kind of man who needed detail. Occasionally, Will would take my hand and squeeze it. He was proud of me, I could tell. Mind you, he had always been proud of me, just as I had been proud of him. Feeling at ease, I held my own in the conversation, even joining in when it turned to religion. Master Cromwell had been working with Cardinal Wolsey to close some of the monasteries that were not serving God as they should, either because they were very small or because the monks had got used to an easy life. The church needs reform, Master Cromwell said deliberately. There's no doubt about it. And the cardinal will use the money saved to pay for colleges for poor boys. What about poor girls? I asked cheekily. He paused and chuckled. Will and Mistress Cromwell both smiled. Why should there not be colleges for poor girls? I asked. I would have attended such a college and maybe studied to become a lawyer. Ah, Mistress Cat, you are well ahead of us, Master Cromwell laughed. But you would not want to be stuck in all day with smelly schoolboys. Not that I am against women's education. My daughters will be educated. But at home, at home, where they are safe and respected. Ha, but Mistress Cat might become a lawyer one day, if she was able, joked his wife. Then she could take both you and Master Will on. Oh, I'm sure you could, Mistress Cat, Cromwell replied. But for now, allow us men to learn. One day we will be educated enough to match the wit of women.
I was tired and a little merry when Will took me back, and it seemed that all of our old easiness together had returned. As he left me just outside the palace, I wrapped my arms around him. Hey, hold on, you know not what you do, he admonished me. He felt so nice and so hard and masculine. I couldn't let go. He stood stiffly for a moment and then he relented and put his arms around me. It felt as if I had come home into a place where I never wanted to leave. Tenderly, tentatively, he bent his lips to mine and kissed me. His lips tasted sweet and I loved the feeling of my smooth skin against his stubble. I felt like I'd never felt before, somehow wild and excited and scared, all at the same time. He pulled back. I'm not going to rush you, cat. Now go. The queen will be waiting for you. Take my kiss with you. He kissed me once more and then pushed me away. Good night, sweet cat. I will see you very soon. In fact, I didn't see Will for several months. I knew that Master Cromwell worked him very hard. The court swung into its summer patterns, moving between palaces, jousting, hunting and picnicking in the lush green parks owned by the king. At Windsor, the ladies, after months of shivering and pulling fur tippets around their throats, started to bemoan their hot, heavy gowns and change their linen several times a day. Queen Catherine remained serene through all of this. She never seemed to sweat or look uncomfortable, no matter how thick and stiff her ornate gowns were. When there was no hunting, we passed the days walking in the hedged gardens, reading from sacred texts and singing. Midsummer passed and we moved into July. Now the king was also at Windsor, although he did not spend much time with the queen. The king desires the queen to attend him in his chamber. The page boy's voice broke the peace of the sleepy afternoon. The ladies were all playing cards, stopping occasionally to fan themselves. Suddenly, the household sprung into action. The queen rose from her chair and smoothed out her skirts. At once, everyone got up. Lady Maria Willoughby glanced at the Queen anxiously while Lady Elizabeth Boleyn adjusted her girdle. Lady Anne Boleyn was holding her cards up as if she was about to read her future. Deliberately, she placed them down on the table. Two of the women hovered beside the Queen, checking that her hood was on straight, that no wisps of hair were escaping. Lady Anne Boleyn put down her cards deliberately on the table, one by one. I removed my apron and checked my cap. We were all going to follow the Queen to the King's chamber. Whatever this summons meant, we would be there to witness it. Slowly and calmly, the Queen processed through her chambers, her ladies and servants walking behind her. As she passed the outer rooms, conversations hushed and courtiers bowed. I felt proud walking behind her, this great Queen of England, who commanded so much respect. 
At last we came to the great doors of the presence chamber. The Queen paused as the two guards flung them open and then bowed. Inside there was a great mell of people, but as they saw the Queen approaching, they moved to the sides of the chamber and let her move through step by step. Lady Elizabeth Boleyn held her train, towering over the tiny Queen in front of her. Queen Catherine walked to the end of the hall and processed towards the King's private chambers. Immediately, the trumpeters blew a fanfare and she walked through. King Henry was seated under his cloth of estate and there was a small group of men standing to his side. I noticed the Cardinal, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Duke of Norfolk. The Queen curtsied deeply to the King and he rose and took her by the hand, leading her to the chair that was placed beside his. Lady Boleyn arranged her train and then stepped back to join the rest of us. This was a procedure that we all knew. It happened almost every day. The exact moment when the trumpets sounded, the entry of the Queen, all of this was calibrated exactly. As the trumpeters ceased, the King held up his hand for silence. He looked troubled, his face creased with a frown. All conversation stilled and all eyes were on him. Welcome, he said. Madam, I thank you for your attendance. I have a great matter to inform you of, a very grave and difficult issue that has been concerning me. My conscience is troubled and it is right that I share this with you all. Queen Catherine leaned forward, looking at him sympathetically. Although they had become more distant with each other, he was her husband and it was her place to support him. After extensive studies of the Bible and conversations with my confessor, I must tell you that a terrible mistake has come to light. Cardinal Wolsey and the Archbishop whispered to each other, but the King raised his hand again and they ceased. Uncharacteristically, he was looking down at the floor. His normal confident glance had disappeared. He almost mumbled, uh, I have doubts about the validity of my marriage. The Queen started up. I could see her face white with surprise. She gripped the handles of her chair and fixed her eyes even more intently upon him. He looked at her pleadingly, but she did not smile. These verses in the Bible have been brought to my attention by priests and scholars. They are from Leviticus. If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. They shall be childless. A gasp of amazement swept the chamber. I looked around at the ladies beside me. They were absolutely taken aback. Meanwhile, King Henry painfully continued. Catherine, when you came to England, you came to wed my brother, Prince Arthur, which you did in great state and joy. You 
and my brother then lived as man and wife in Ludlow until his sad death some months later. You are Arthur's wife, and therefore our marriage was not valid. Your Majesty, the Queen whispered, you know I was never Arthur's wife fully. Why do you say otherwise? How do I know, Catherine? There are differing accounts of your wedding night, differing accounts that I have heard and marked full well. But, Your Majesty, these were not true. I have many witnesses who can swear to my purity when I came to you, and we had a dispensation from the Pope to marry, which specifically provided against those verses. Catherine, that dispensation could not cancel out those verses. King Henry was in his stride again now, speaking loudly and clearly so that we could all hear. I am as distressed as you are, dear lady, to realise this. Were it not for your previous marriage to my brother, I would choose no other wife but you. I grieve that your years of service now mean nothing because of the sham that was our marriage. You were never the queen, my dear. Never? Not during all the dangers we faced together, all the love we shared, all the children I bore for you? The Queen's voice was anguished. I felt the anger build inside me. How dare he put her through this? I hated him at that moment more than I hated anyone else. My dear, sweet Queen Catherine, who had given him her life, to be treated like a halfpenny whore. The king was kindly patronising. But my dear, we have not been blessed with children. Those you bore all died except for Mary. Surely you must see that this proves the verse to be correct. But we have a child. We have Princess Mary, your child, whom you have been preparing to take the crown. The Queen's voice rang out across the hall. King Henry answered her soothingly. She is a female child, my dear. I have said before, the English will never accept a female ruler. I tell you again, were it otherwise, you would always be my Queen. But you have never been so, because our marriage was invalid. My conscience has troubled me deeply on this issue. I can tell you, I have not slept for many nights. I have prayed that I might have read the verse wrongly and that we could go back to the happy old times. But don't you see, Catherine, those times were built on a lie. Our marriage was no lie, Catherine spoke passionately. Your Majesty, you know that. I have been a true wife to you. These 18 years I have obeyed you, supported you, loved you as no other. Catherine, my dear, I have spoken to eminent scholars and priests about this matter. I have stayed long into the night 
debating with the Archbishop here and the Cardinal. They both tell me that our so-called marriage was not valid. Cardinal Wolsey and the Archbishop both nodded uncomfortably to confirm this. So, how have they done that? How have you given me the title, respect and legitimacy of being queen? I did not notice these doubts when I led the troops against the Scots or when I delivered our young son to your majesty. A young son that did not live, King Henry retorted. A young son who lived for seven weeks until God took him for himself. He was a living child. Queen Catherine's face crumpled and she started to cry. I had never seen this before. She was so much a queen, she would never normally expose her tears publicly. King Henry's eyes looked moist and he stood up before her, holding his hand out to her as if to comfort her. You are as shocked, madam, as I was. And believe me, Catherine, I would that it were any other way. I love you dearly and I do not wish for your soul or mine to be in danger because of our adultery. Adultery? Queen Catherine spat. It is not me who has committed adultery and you know that. You have had your mistresses and I have turned a blind eye. You have dandled your bastards on your knee while you sent our daughter away. And always, through everything, I have been your wife. Your wife, Catherine. This matter is difficult for both of us. The king spoke soothingly. It needs to be decided in church law. I pray that my doubts are resolved. But until it has been debated by the great theologians and princes of the church, we cannot live as man and wife. Retire, dear Catherine. I will give you a grand country house with orchards and a park. You shall have everything you desire. Or, if you would rather, you could go to a nunnery and live quietly there. That might suit you better, the chance to lead a religious life. Hey, nonary, I was called by God to the position of queen and wife, not of none. Just while the matter is decided, dear Catherine, the king looked pleadingly at her. Queen Catherine rose, wiping the tears from her eyes and curtsied to him. My husband, my lord, I was destined to be by your side all of our lives, and that is what I will do. Excuse me, my lord, I have some shirts of yours that I need to finish. I do not know how the queen managed to leave with the same dignity and grace as she had entered, but she walked through the privy chamber and, stick erect, walked down through the presence chamber, the courtiers all bowing and curtsying to her, though some half-heartedly. 
She waited for the guards to open the doors and passed through them without a backward glance. Her ladies followed, most of them ashen-faced. I noticed, though, that Anne Boleyn looked composed and her mother had a small smile on her face. Had they known what was going to happen? We processed slowly back through the state apartments, through the chambers, until we reached the Queen's quarters. It took a minute or two for us all to enter the chamber before the doors were closed. Ah, oh sweet virgin mother, what have I done to deserve this? The Queen was wailing, an animalistic sound that scared me. She kicked off her shoes, took her hood off and threw it to the floor. Then she limped to her big bed and lay on it, weeping. What evil demon bewitched the king? Henry, who hath loved me, who hath fought for me as I fought for him. Henry, who swore to love me forever. Does he not remember that the Pope gave us that dispensation to wed? And he knew, he knew, I was pure when I came to him. How can he deny that? And what will become of Mary? Will he disinherit her? Lady Maria Willoughby lay down on the bed beside her, cradling her mistress's head in her arms. Nothing will happen to Princess Mary. The king is in a miasma of doubt. His thoughts are troubling him. But we shall pray to our Virgin Mother, and that doubt will clear. He loves you, Catalina. Hush now, sweet lady. All is not lost. Your place in the king's heart is secure. We will get theologians to reassure him. He is a good son of the church. He will come round. A nunnery! A nunnery! He may as well wish me in my grave, Queen Catherine cried. She was very pious, but we all knew she saw herself as a married woman and a queen. She was not going to allow those positions to be stolen from her. Oh.